You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Oh my gosh, that's me. Welcome to the BH Photo Podcast. Today we ask the question: Are you down with drones? The latest on aerial photography platforms. Our guests today include Randy Scott Slavin, director, photographer, aerial cinematographer, and the main man at Yeah Drones, a full-service production company specializing in artistic aerial cinematography for film, television, and advertising. Randy is also the founder of the New York City Drone Film Festival, which is next scheduled for March 2016. Also joining us today is my good friend and B&H product specialist, Dan Campo, who is greatly responsible for making B&H the number one source for drones and related aerial imaging technologies. Today's topic, unmanned aerial vehicles, aerial platforms, aerial photography platforms, or as they are most commonly called drones, are hot-button issues in photography these days. Like many aspects of the digital photographic revolution, powerful imaging technology is available to a wide range of people. So today we're going to talk about how all of this is playing out legally and technically for professionals and amateurs alike. On a personal note, I purchased a first-generation DJI Phantom drone when they first hit the scene. And while I was able to successfully exceed my remote control flying skills while terrifying every genre of wildlife within a quarter of a mile of a local ball field, Upon my attorney's advice and after a few close calls and crashes, I sold it on eBay in order to avoid lawsuits and submitting to hundreds of hours of community service. All of that said, Randy, tell us about how you first fell into this, uh, specifically drone cinematography. And by the way, if, if you, when you visit his website, which we'll give you the information later, it, Randy's work is absolutely breathtaking. It, it Drone Im imaging is really spectacular, and Randy has really mastered, truly mastered, uh, the art and technique of the, that craft. Well, thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I got into it at the same time that you did. I mean, it really, the first-generation Phantom is kind of what got me into it. Really, the way that the story goes, which is actually 100% true, is I, I like watching skateboard videos. Uh, I've been a director for the past 10 years, and I always like watching skateboard videos because they're kind of repositories of really good style, and they're usually very fringe, which I particularly like. Uh, you always see interesting camera techniques, technologies, and whatnot. And there's one uh, video that I saw called Pretty Sweet, and uh, it started out with this shot that just literally blew me away. I mean, my, my jaw was on the floor. You know, I was like, how did they shoot that? It starts out as a close-up on somebody's face. It goes over their head, across a street, over like a 12-foot chain-link fence, down a corridor, up and down, up and down, around another corner, down a flight of stairs. And then it ends up circling this whole uh, group of skateboarders and going up into the air. And I, I was just dumbfounded. I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out maybe they cut a hole in the gate. Maybe they're following them with some kind of like uh, gimbal system, steady cam that's attached to a golf cart. I didn't even, I had no clue, honestly. And I watched it over and over again and I saw a shadow and the shadow was like of like a flying camera. I mean, it was, you know, I was like, okay. <laughs> so I started looking online and I, and I, and I was like, wow, this whole drone thing, flying cameras, what the hell? I mean, it, it was way more relegated to hobbyists and, and people that were kind of uh, just building their own systems. And I found the, the Phantom and that was just as the first Phantom came out. No gimbals, no nothing at that point. And, um, 
I probably bought it here. I mean, at B and H, and um, I, I had one, you know, within the week, and I started flying it immediately. And what's interesting about that time, as you kind of mentioned, is you know it was a lot more janky than it is now. These days, you know, you hook up, you have your your cameras hooked up to your phone, you have seventeen satellites, you let go of the controller, and it's literally it is rock solid in the air, doesn't change. I mean, you can probably shoot a time lapse with no problems whatsoever, um, and, and maybe even very minimal post production with any kind of camera motion. Back then, it was not even close to that, and no gimbal. So I mean, anytime you move the drone left or right, you had that camera motion in there. A tilt right would cause a tilt right in the camera um, and I actually kind of really look very fondly upon that time you know the time that I spent really learning how to fly the Phantom in the gimballess era or my pre-gimbal era <laughs> right back then you really had to learn how to like utilize the wind because oh, yeah. when you're when you were you know pressing your 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 aileron or your rudder or anything in any direction it would cause so much camera motion so you had to really fly up wind and let it you know, the natural camera motion kind of drag it. And um, there was a real art and finesse to getting any kind of decent shots at that point. There still is. I still think it is an incredibly difficult uh, art. It was also kind of unpredictable. I know the first, say, I'd say, half dozen flights that I had, they were really, really good. I was able to get a thing to shoot up, come down, and I, was, I remember I was playing around. I was having it hovering over a, uh, uh, a juice bottle that I had on the ground. I was getting just to tickle it and knock it around a little bit and then take off and come back down, and it was fine. And then I crashed it, and it never quite worked the same way. Uh, <laughs> well, they're not meant to be crashed. I mean, let's be real. I mean, especially now that we have something like the Inspire. I mean, the Inspire is not meant to be crashed at all. Right. As soon as it falls, I mean, it's like it has that very delicate gimbal. All the gimbals are delicate, but that yes. one especially is hanging down off the bottom. And, you know, it's like as soon as it, it gets knocked, uh, any of the blades get knocked, and it's just going to fall. And as soon as it falls on the gimbal, it's done. Well, so, and then, can you explain gimbals? Yeah, a gimbal... To put it in very basic terms, it's kind of like a chicken's head. You know how, like, you hold on to a chicken and you move it around and the, the head of the chicken stays in exactly the same place? Aha. Uh -huh. I'm hearing crickets here. I mean, all right. <laughs> no, no, I'm no, from no, New no, York no, City, no. so I don't really know much about chickens either, but I did know about this before gimbals. Anyway, <laughs> the, the, the idea is that basically that, you know, it, the gimbal through the use of motors, some of them in two dimensions, some of them in three dimensions, uh, counteracts the motion of the craft and the wind so that the camera is stable. Thank you, Danny. You've you've seen this whole thing from from day one, pretty much. I remember when you know you were walking around the office with these drones. You were flying them around the office. I remember you you disrupted many work. I don't do that here. anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> but let's get some perspective from you. You've you've seen it from the earliest machines, which were not not were a notch above the Wright brothers' flying machines as far as technology, to where we are today. Um, can you tell us about some of these transitions and how things have improved from the first to the latest of what we now have available? I came in. To the uh, to the industry about the same time that Randy did, as he was saying, it was around two and a half, three years ago. The first generation Phantom, they came by and uh, they put it on my desk and they said, "Here, you need to train the B and H sales staff on how to use this, how to understand it." Three months later, and three models that I I'd crashed two of them. Uh, <laughs> one of them flew away. One of them crashed. Um, I finally started to understand how these things worked, how they ticked. Uh, they're they're quite simple machines, really, when you, you take down the core components, sort of like a computer. You have your processor, you have your RAM, you have your storage, uh, you have the case for it. It's, it's a similar way. You have a flight controller, which is like your processor. You, mm -hmm. have, uh, you have accelerometers, you have gyroscopes, 
you have your motors, you have all these uh, core components, you put them all together and you have an aircraft that's able to tell where it is, how high it is, uh, it's able to maintain its position in space vertically, horizontally. It's, it's very impressive the kind of technology that gets put into these very simple machines that can do so much. Now, is it safe to assume that that one drone that you lost did not have all of these wonderful technologies in them? That's correct. Right <laughs> after it, was, uh, it, it had flown away on its own, uh, I had found out that there was a new firmware update that I had not installed yet, which enabled it to, uh, to not lock into cell phone tower signals. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I didn't do the firmware update, and I lost that Phantom. But they sent me another one. They're very nice about it. Okay. By the way, that is not a regular policy from any of the drone manufacturers. If they fly away, <laughs> it's your problem. Okay. Just so get flight insurance from your local And these days, if they fly away, it's because you messed up. Sorry. Right. And you mentioned earlier, uh, these are, are strictly for outdoor use. When it comes to the ones that are Phantom size and Spire size, uh, these two in particular from DJI, they have indoor flight stability built in. They have cameras that do uh, sort of like 3D mapping of the ground to be able to lock the, their position in space. They have sonars that are able to get uh, within, uh, I believe, two-inch uh, altitude to lock itself in altitude. And that's up for, uh, I believe, up to eight feet is the, the limitation. So you actually can fly them indoors. So it's a flying safely. Roomba. Right. It's a <laughs> It also vacuums the carpet. <laughs> the newest model, the Phantom 4, also vacuums the carpet and cleans your toilet. Works on a timer. <laughs> but do you guys remember the the original Phantom where like you had like the series of colored lights flashing? I mean, it was like it was like talking to R2D2. I remember oh, yes. never being sure of exactly what it was trying to tell me. I don't know whether this thing's ready to fly, not ready to fly or whatever. It was kind of like a little bit of alchemy. It was a totally different language that it took a while for everyone to start to understand. Once you understood it, uh, you learned the language of DJI. It was, uh, it was very easy to fly. Now, architecture is one thing that, I, when, as soon as I saw it, I, I realized that for architectural photographers and people in real estate, it's absolutely uh, a dream tool. And looking at the videos you have posted online, uh, it's, it's proof of it. What other applications have you had so far for shooting from drones? So my company, Yeah Drones, we shoot a lot of different things. It really just depends on what our clients are asking for. I mean, me personally, when I first got my drones, even from the first Phantom, and I've had every DJI product since then, and, and I build a lot of other drones myself now. Do you build them specifically for projects, or are you just doing this on the side? I mean, do you get an assignment say, what I, the tools that I need don't exist, I'm going to Let's see what I could put together. Or are you just often. thinking beyond all of that? Yeah, often. I mean, it depends on what the client wants. I mean, like sometimes you have an advertising client who says, hey, we need to drop a bag from here to there. You know, when a cl when somebody walks up and pushes this button, we need it to deliver this. So you need to, you know, take whatever drone is, is most appropriate for that and figure out what kind of system you need to incorporate on it. So a claw with, um, you know, um, some sort of servo system. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I started really building way more once I got into the racing drone world because mm -hmm. in that world, when I got into it, there were no ready-to-fly systems, so you had to build everything your own. And now, since I got into that, it's kind of affected my drone building and drone flying in every capacity. But, you know, when, when you're working with advertising companies and all different kinds of clients like we are, it really just depends. And I go into those meetings and I say, we can do anything you want because drones essentially are a tinkerer's sport. You know what I mean? Uh, 
for the most part, you know, aside from the ready to fly systems by DJI and others, you know, it's like they're meant to be built and you can put anything on a drone from a camera to a, a claw to a, you know, I mean, whatever you want, a fire extinguisher, whatever. I mean, you know, there's, there's no limits. So, you know, we tell clients whatever it is that you need, we can do. And then we just need to, you know, kind of talk to the engineers that we work with that do that kind of stuff. We recently shot something for a company called MRY. And the idea that we kind of workshop together was that drones work in their office, you know, as like employees, you know, uh -huh, and we were, uh -huh. so we, we brought in a bunch of drones. We brought in a Phantom, we brought in a QAV, uh, something called a Danius by a, a frame designer named Andy Shen. Uh, and another couple of completely custom drones because they wanted one drone that had a, a blinking LED sign on it that said, I just sent you an email. So, you know, we had to like design that particular thing. We had to rig it up. We had to make sure the electronics, the, the batteries were feeding the, you know, the LEDs inside that particular sign. So, you know, in that case, we built this drone that is essentially the email drone that goes around notifying people that they just got an email. What's the most challenging flight you've had so far as far as capturing image moving through the air with drones. What, what, what's the most challenging assignment you've had so far? What's the, what's the shot that made you the most nervous when you were piloting? That's a, that's a yeah, which one, that's, <laughs> which one had you most nervous? Well, you know, look, I have to say this. Aerial cinematography is extremely difficult uh, on all fronts. And anybody that tells you otherwise is lying to make themselves look good, all right? Okay. Um, so I find it challenging all the time. And I also think that it always deserves a certain amount of respect because you're always shooting outside for uh, always, but I mean, for the most part, you're <laughs> shooting outside and outside you have a and, lot and of And by factors. the way, for those of you who have never used drones, it's highly advisable that you learn to use it outdoors before you bring them indoors. Highly advisable. I, I hear what you're saying, but that's for the big ones. I would say first things first, get a little tiny one for like 60 bucks and practice it indoors where there's no wind. Uh -huh, and okay. then either bring that one outdoors. You know, it's like, I think you, if you're going to learn, learn on something you can crash on a lot. Because if you go out and buy a Phantom first, you're going to crash it. And as you said before, once you crash it, they never fly the same. They're not meant to be crashed. They are meant to be landed on the legs. Actually, speaking about crashes, uh, which is inevitable, because you learn how to ride a bicycle, you crash. It happens. Um, there's a lot of legal aspects to this topic right now. And and a lot of it could be very, very confusing from what I have read. There's often a lot of confusion. There, there are federal regulations. There are also state regulations and city and municipal. And sometimes, depending on where you live, you could actually be flying in an area where there's really nobody will be able to agree upon what the actual regulation is because local, state, and federal, or all three might disagree with what the parameters are of what mm -hmm. you can do and can't do. I mean, in order to fly commercially legally, you need a Section 333 exemption from the FAA. Which is? Uh, it's it's pretty much an, an FAA waiver that says that they are allowing your company to fly commercially. That's the only way to do it. Airspace is the FAA's jurisdiction no matter what city, state, town, whatever jurisdiction you're in, the airspace is the FAA's in the United States. So you must get, in order to commercially fly drones, you must have an FAA exemption, section 333, period. Um, aside from that, if you're a hobbyist, you know, really, I think it's just smart. Well, first of all, I think it's smart to uh, just know the AMA guidelines. And AMA, the Academy of Model Aeronautics, it just pretty much sets forth certain guidelines that just make sense for people who are flying, you know, RC aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, I think even more than that, it just makes sense that you just have 
a head on your shoulders. You know, when you're flying something around that's that has propellers and could potentially hurt somebody. I mean, I joke, you know, often that it's a flying blender. Um, <laughs> you know, that you don't fly over people. You don't recklessly endanger people. I mean, you know, the reality is it's not that dangerous of an item, you know? I mean, considering that we drive automobiles everywhere, which is many tons of, 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 of metal, uh, you know, careening around at high speeds, and we give licenses to every person out there, it's not that dangerous. But that being said, I think it's really important that pilots uh, just use good judgment. Uh, FAA has a, is pretty much the organization that sets a lot of the parameters. My understanding is that you're not allowed to fly an unmanned flying craft uh, drone within five miles of an airport. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Even within Section 333 exemption. Even. Unless you have a certain uh, waiver. So there's a COA which is, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, of various documents which you need to um, pay attention to and, and, and know the rules for. I mean, with a Section 333 exemption, the pilot of the aircraft must be an actual pilot, a registered pilot, like, an, like a pilot of normal aircraft. So you need a full pilot's license, essentially, to or qualify for one to be able to fly even a drone. Exactly. Now, what's interesting about that is that if there is a five-mile limit, if you're in the New York City area, you're surrounded by... Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK, and that covers most of a lot, a good deal of New York City, which means that even with all of these approvals, you still have to be careful of where you're flying if you're in the New York area. Is oh, that for correct? sure, especially because there's heliports, and there's sure. a bunch of heliports, so essentially all of Manhattan is pretty much off limits. Um, that being said, look, the FAA is a reasonable organization. Right now, they're, you know, in particular duress because of the amount of people that are buying phantoms and other ready-to-fly systems and getting in the air. They're scared because their airspace is in jeopardy, which is totally understandable. And I mean, you know, we deal with them all the time and we try to work with them understanding that kind of problem that they have. They are willing to make exceptions in certain cases. They're willing to discuss in the same way that they're willing to do that when you fly a helicopter for TV or fly a plane for TV. I mean, like, you know, a helicopter can fly over downtown Manhattan and shoot whatever they need. Mm -hmm. That being said, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a certain amount of protocol that has to be kind of, um, you know, mimicked every single time in order for all the proper parties to know what you're doing. You know, when we go out and we fly, we fly with a VHF um, radio so that our pilot is in communication with the nearby towers or local aircraft. As soon as an aircraft comes near, we hear the chatter over the radio. You know, it, it's it, it really you have to be a steward of those rules because that's what's required of you in order to be able to fly commercially. And you know what? It's a pain in the ass. You have to be responsible. You know, when I first got my Phantom, by the way, like one of the things that put me on the map when it came to aerial cinematography was a video that I did called Aerial NYC. And I shot when I first got my Phantom all around Manhattan. I wouldn't fly like that anymore. But that was years ago. And it's like everybody's entitled to a certain amount of time of, of cowboy behavior when they first get into something yeah, and they don't yeah. know the rules. But these days, if you just buy a Phantom, the rules are abundantly clear these days they weren't a few years ago as you know in the faa didn't even have rules at that particular point you know there was the perker case and all that other stuff so i you know i advise everybody to be extremely extremely careful fly away from people you know if you want to get shots figure out ways of doing them responsibly for the benefit of you your gear and others and the community as a whole anybody have any idea what percentage of the drone pilots to call or our customers are actually using them for photography work and how many of them are just playing with it as a very cool toy. Anyone have an idea? 
it's mostly photographers, videographers, filmmakers. Uh, however, a lot of them are using him, uh, using them just as toys because they're interesting. Everyone, uh, all the photographers and videographers, filmmakers that shop at, at B&H, most of them are gearheads. They want to have the latest, greatest electronics, the, the best tools in the bag. And right now, drones are, are one of the greatest tools in the bag to have. Not everyone is using it professionally. Not everyone has gotten the Section 333 from the FAA. But the, the strange thing is when you pick out any of the small, inexpensive, easy-to-use drones from the beginner class, they're actually more difficult to use than the intermediate class. The intermediate class drones, uh, since we've been talking about it, such as a DJI Phantom, okay. uh, there are so many sensors and measurement tools to be able to figure out where it is and what it needs to do next that it's almost a, a autonomous flight. You, you're, you're giving it basic directions on where to go, but in between those directions, it's able to keep itself, maintain its airspace, maintain its position in space. Um, with the small drones, they don't have these sensors. When you, uh, when you throttle up and you have it, say, five feet in the air, if you take your hand off the throttle, st the throttle stick, it might, uh, it might fly up and down, with the smaller beginner drones, uh, without all these sensors, uh, there is nothing to help you or to guide you in flight, to stabilize the aircraft. So what I usually suggest to people is, is got, it's same thing as what Randy said, buy one of these uh, consumer beginner drones, the, the less expensive ones. Once you've mastered or learned how to fly those, if you go up to a Phantom that's going to cost you significantly more, you're not going to have any problems flying it. All the autopilot systems and all the uh, all the sensors involved will will calculate where it is and help you in flight. So how to, right now, and again, prices and technology changes very r rapidly. How much do you have to spend approximately to get into a drone that is controllable, one that you could learn, one that is not going to scare off every animal in a neighborhood? I would say between $500 and $1,500. Uh, that, that would be your, your range of the intermediate drones. And, and really in that range, you're going to have uh, compatibility to cameras, action cams, such as GoPros, things like that. Or you have cameras that are built in, that are integrated, that are designed and made by the manufacturer of that drone that are very similar image quality to a uh, one of the more most popular GoPros, like a GoPro Hero 4. Now, GoPro is something that is almost synonymous with this type of photography. Could you guys tell us a little bit more about what camera choices are available right now? Say, for, yeah, obviously, we have cameras that will just do 720p, the beginner ones, but what exactly are the breakdowns of it? Well, 2015 is a really good time to be getting into aerial cinematography or aerial photography with drones because the options are huge. Um, the biggest change that we've seen over the past couple of years is that most of the cameras, at least on DJI's side, have gone proprietary. So they went from you know, having the uh, gimbal, the H3 2D gimbal, which is a two-dimensional gimbal, to the H3 3D gimbal, to the H4 3D gimbal uh, based on the various GoPros that it was using. And, you know, frankly, that system was always kind of janky. It was like you had to really work it all out because there was a lot of jello problems. You had to get the right frame rates. You had to do a lot of post-processing. There were a lot of problems. 
the DJI proprietary cameras have gotten better because they've designed them to work on the actual aircraft. So they're extremely light. They're built just for this. And now, of course, we have the Inspire with the Inspire camera on it, which is a great camera and more along the lines of the GoPro. And of course, the brand new announcement is the X5 and the X5R, which are micro four thirds. It's a proprietary camera by DJI on that goes onto the Inspire. It's a proprietary camera. And that just is, in my humble opinion, a game changer. You know, to, to be able to lift a camera that has that amount of raw uh, capacity on a, on a drone like the Inspire that's so stable and so small and, you know, just so user friendly is just really a game changer. I mean, there's no other companies that I know of out there that are even close to that. You know, there's, there's all kinds of companies that are building big heavy lifter drones. Sure, you can lift an Alexa with some systems, you can lift Red, Scarlet and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's on the very high end heavy lifter spectrum. And, you know, you're talking about very expensive systems. That's a liability. You know, it's like you're flying between, you know, 70,000 and half a million dollars worth of stuff in the air. And mm. people that rent those cameras are not excited about that. And most of them will not even let you rent their Alexa Mini to fly around. Even Red, which is way more, you know, ubiquitous, people aren't psyched about that. They don't want their, their expensive glass and their camera flying in the air because these things crash. It's just a part of it, which is why you have to be careful. But the Inspire is just, you know, I, mean, I can't wait to get my hands on that thing because the amount of quality that we're gonna get off of that with the form factor being so small and the quality, I mean, like I've flown the Inspire in 30 knot winds constantly and it just sticks there like a tripod in the sky. That's very impressive. I just shot Good Morning America live uh, from NASA last week. It was like <laughs> space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. That's where they have space camp. And yeah. it was like from NASA, they have the Saturn V rocket and all this other yeah, kind of yeah. stuff there. It was a really cool place. And um, Good Morning America was doing uh, this series called Above and Beyond. So they brought us in to shoot these aerials because this artist was like aligning like hun like thousands of people to like make these pictures. So they needed an aerial camera to shoot, to shoot with this, uh, you know, what the art looked like. And... Um, the Inspire is just so awesome. It's like not only were they does it enable live streaming or in their case use of like a live feed with their you know uh, minimal kind of uh, light bridge technology that they have in the in, in that, but it's also extremely stable. And I remember I'm on I'm on like two walkie talkies at once, one between me and my pilot because I'm the camera operator because I'm not a real pilot. So he, my pilot has to fly the aircraft. I'm on a walkie talkie with him, and on the other side I have you know, uh, a walkie talkie on with live in New York. So I can hear the director speaking so I can hear our cues and I'm up in the air shooting this thing. And I hear the director say from New York, wow, look how stable that is. <laughs> is that thing, is that the drone? It's just sticking there. And you know, the, the, for, for the size of the drone, it's like, you know, only like double the size of the phantom, you know, when you start flying, these bigger drones for the, to lift the GH4 or the 5D Mark III or the pocket cinema camera, you're talking about a drone that's monstrous, the size of a table. You know, it's like it's got six rotors, eight rotors, it makes a lot of noise, requires huge batteries, you know, and it's like the Inspire is tiny. The batteries are are beautiful, easy, they last long. I mean, you're talking about 15 minute flight times, easy. You also have to build the S900 and the S1000. You have to purchase several components just to get them up in the air and you have to build it yourself there's no open up the box take a look at your drone put on the propellers calibrate it and fly it there's so many more steps hours worth of labor and work and you if you mess up uh 
you know, at any point of the installation, you try again. You buy the new component that you just ruined by not knowing how to install it. There's gluing involved. You glue the wrong component in in the wrong place. You know, you might have to spend some money fixing that mistake. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but, you know, it's like you, you have to update firmware on all these different components, you know, and it's like when you do that, forget it. I mean, you brick something like a GCU, the gimbal control unit, and it's like it's going to take you. I mean, if you can find the right people to because you can't just bring it back to B&H, you have to call up, you know, uh, you know, DJI's helpline. And at a certain point in the past, getting through that was, you know, I mean, forget been, it. You'd been be more lucky that. To just, right. Yeah. Good luck. So, you know, and it's like. These kind of things, you know, if you're lucky, if you can find a YouTube video, the instructions are written by somebody, you know, in China who's like, you know, not being translated very well. And so obviously all these things have gotten better. But, you know, the just the Inspire itself right now is so easy. It's just such like a pop up. By the way, they're not paying me. DJ is not paying me. The, I just really feel this way. You know, I think there's a, a flaw in the in the Inspire in that there's no pilot camera. There needs to be another another pilot camera so that the pilot can see where it's going and the and the camera operator can look wherever they want with the actual camera. But um, aside from that, I think it's a near flawless uh, camera platform. We just got a telegraph from DJI on the other side of the planet, and they are going to get on that right after lunch. I want you to Hopefully. know that. There's the one thing that I just wanted to add on with the Inspire and the X5 and X5R cameras. What sort of sets the Inspire now apart from all the others is before there was always a, a really solid line. You had your uh, consumer or low-end professional, sort of prosumer photography and videographers and, and cinematographers all using the aircraft, the, the more beginner to intermediate aircraft like DJI Phantoms. Then you had your higher-end users, your professional cinematographers, X-Fold systems carrying uh, RED systems, uh, Ari Alexas. You've got your S900, S1000 users carrying uh, Sony A7S, 5D Mark III's. Now with the Inspire, with the X5 camera and the X5R camera, you're getting 4K and 4K RAW from a large sensor using a consumer-friendly drone that isn't anywhere near as expensive as developing a, a S900 S1000 kit, though they do have their place in the world. Anybody wanting to use a 5D Mark III, uh, A7S, uh, uh, any kind of 35-millimeter full-frame sensor. But that stuff's going to go away. I mean, like, it, you know, really, they kind of, like, killed their S900 and S1000 line because until those can carry big, bigger cameras... Because, look, you know, being somebody that shoots on the ground with these things all the time, you know... Clients don't really care here or there. It's not like they're saying like, oh my God, I can't shoot with the GH4. You have to shoot with the 5D Mark III because they're kind of interchangeable a little bit. As long as you're having like, you know, interchangeable lens system with like a relatively large sensor, especially the raw thing, really important. And the 5D Mark III doesn't do raw and that's really important for all post-production, you know? So, you know, in a way they're kind of just taking the S1000 and the S900 off because why would anybody even need that stuff? You're either going to go for a big heavy lifter that's going to carry 30 pounds plus, a Red or, or an Alexa or Alexa Mini, or you're going to be using the Inspire now, you know? And, so, and it really just wiped out that whole kind of like middle, like that Let me ask you end. a question. So what, what you're getting at is that a lot of these large flying monsters, and by the way, you, you talk about some of these large ones that could lift 30 pounds. How big are these and how much do those units themselves weigh? 
they're not that heavy because they're all carbon fiber. So you're talking about maybe, I think an they're, S900's like, what, 10 pounds or something? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe second weight. They're not that heavy. And what, and what about diameter? I mean, how wide are these things? Three, four, four feet? So about five, twice as wide. Four feet for the S900, five the, feet the for the S1000? The S1000 Plus, I believe it's uh, just over five, five and a half feet. Yeah, they're big. The, the and they're so it's twice the diameter of, a, uh, of the average Phantom then. It's about, yes. It's like twice, twice up. Two then. and a half times. Yeah. Two and a half just times. About. Okay. But what you're also alluding to is the fact that these, unless for very specific applications, maybe for industrial or whatever, may not be necessary because of the fact that now these, with the four-third senses in particular, we're getting really high quality with four-third senses and raw. All of these large, monstrous machines are really not necessarily necessary. Not necessary at all. You know, because the problem that you have with the, the aerodynamics of these things is the heavier they are, the more power they require. And the batteries, the, the more power they require, the bigger the batteries have to be. So you have this kind of like, this kind of like very technical arc where it's like you have weight ratios and battery power ratios. So the lighter you can make the cameras, the lighter you can make the drone, the lighter you can make the battery, the longer you're going to stay aloft. Which brings right. me to my next question now. When I first started with the my original Phantom way back when, the flight time was like about, what, six to eight minutes or something? It was very, mm-hmm. very short. What are the flight times now Most at this point Most of them are, are between 18 and 25 minutes. Not really. I mean, like, they say that, you know, I mean... You hovering know, but hovering in place. Mi- no hovering in place in Your a Your mileage kinda... may vary. That's right. Yeah, that's a 55 miles an hour on the highway and level with no wind. Okay, exactly. Realistically, exactly. you get about reality. 15 minutes. And, uh, and even more realistically, you get about 13 minutes. And it really depends on how aggressively you're flying. Because if you're flying in 30-mile-an-hour winds, you're not getting 15 minutes. And if you're right. flying... Exactly. If you're changing your altitude like crazy, are you moving fast, very forward? I mean, like, these are all things. It's like a very dynamic system, you know? It's like it, it, people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, it just lasts this amount of time. Or when we fly racers, you know, people are like, oh, my God, six minutes? How can you get six minutes? That's nothing. But it's like, you know, when these racers are flying at, like, 80 miles an hour. How long can you concentrate on that? You know, it's like, and and they're flying, they're pushing the motors really fast. So the more intense you're flying, the more changes you're doing, the more altitude changes, you know, you're taxing your battery. And it's like, you know, it's like, you need to understand that. When we were on Good Morning America, I had to be extremely clear with the producers that like, and I would always estimate on the low side, I would tell them we have operational 10 minutes of flight time because Sure, if we can get 12 minutes, amazing. You know, great. Then we had two minutes more leeway. But last thing I need is them betting on 12 minutes, 13 minutes, 15 minutes. And then we get 10 minutes because the winds pick up and all of a sudden it's fighting a lot harder in the air or they, they require really fast altitude change. You know, when you're shooting these things, sometimes you're talking about flying from five feet off the ground to your maximum altitude really quickly. And when you're taxing the motors like that, you're taxing the battery, and that means you're giving up some battery life. What's the ratio? When you're out there working right now, what percentage of you is pilot and what percentage of you is cinematographer? The skill sets that are required are obviously photography and videography. So you have to know how to get an exposure, you know? So you have to know that kind of stuff. You have to know how to fly the drone and the technical expertise on the drone itself, which is in-depth, because even just knowing all the you know, intelligent orientation modes on the DJI products so that if it gets too far out of your range and you can't tell what the orientation of the craft is and all of a sudden you lose sight on your visual system, you need to know how to be able to get it back to you. So there's the knowledge of the craft itself and how to pilot it. A director's conundrum always is, what am I shooting? What's my action? And then how do I shoot it? And where you're placing the camera is a big deal. And when and here's the thing. When you're flying a drone, you can put the camera anywhere you want. With the technology now, 
basically everyone is being teed up to be able to get a beautiful shot. All they have to do is understand how to get the shot themselves, how to frame up the shot themselves. The technology is there. Anyone can use any of these drones that are out today, no matter which brand it is. The drones that are available today all have the same uh, similar uh, positional guidance sensors, very similar positional guidance sensors that'll put it up uh, wherever anyone needs to get a specific shot. Who are the key players right now? Out of the ready-to-fly systems, yeah, you've, you've DJI, 3DR, Unique. Blade. Blade. Which uh, is Horizon Hobby. Horizon Hobby, exactly. Which, by the way, for beginners, I always recommend the Blade Nano. I think it's a great system, especially if you want to try FPV, a first-person view, if you want to use goggles or mm -hmm. if you want to use a monitor to kind of start to really like get to know what the drone is seeing. Their ready-to-fly system, the Blade Nano R RTF, uh, FPV RTF or something like that is a great system. I totally recommend it. It's 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 pricey, but it's worth it because, like I said, it's better to crash a cheaper drone that's a couple hundred bucks than to crash a Phantom. You also have the Hubson line and mm. the the very small Hubson drones. Usually, those are the ones you can find for around fifty to eighty dollars. Right. Those are very good beginner yeah, tools too. Um, you also have Wakara. Uh, there's other brands that you can find. Uh, you can find online places where. They're usually uh, small Chinese companies you know, trying to make a similar product. Sima, to Sima, Sima, Sima. I love their drones. Honestly, I think they're you know their helicopters also. They're little toy kind of helicopters. Really good. What about audio? Because audio is also part of cinematography. Are there any options as far as audio? Is this something that we're not even there for you? Unfortunately, until they come out with the stealth uh, multi rotor aircraft, uh, that that consumers that? can afford. There, it doesn't exist. Oh. <laughs> it, until they come out with the stealth. I thought mode. he knew about something, and I was like, "Tell <laughs> yeah, me, I tell saw me, you just please. suit up and get all excited." There, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to have to edit out this confidential, confidential footage. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was kind of upset. Go. You know, the Inspire One doesn't have any audio, and it's like, I don't need audio coming from my, you know, uh, coming from my drone. But it, I do like it. I, you know, I'm not sure whether I like it because I've gotten used to it because, you know, when you used to fly a GoPro, you'd hear it. And when you fly like a 5D Mark III, you can hear it. When you fly a GH4, you can hear it because they all have, you know, audio in all those systems. So there's a part of me when I, when I get the footage from the Inspire that kind of misses that. I understand why they wouldn't do it because why do they need to carry that any extra gear? It's kind of dead weight. But... You know, it's also like it's also interesting from like a diagnostic point of view, you know, and I've gotten more used to that actually on the racing drone side. The sound of the drone indicates the drone's health and well-being. Interesting point. I know when I'm driving a car, especially you get used to the sound of a car and you could tell if something is not quite right. It's sort of like a, a way of keeping in a, a finger on the pulse in a sense. What do you guys see in the next five years? We've seen an awful lot in the past three or four years since all of this started taking off. Where are we going? What do you know is going to be coming down the pike? What would you like to see? You know, look, the technology has just been flying. You know, with the new X5 and X5R, I'm kind of seeing what I like. I like the idea of being able to have something like the Inspire, but with a better camera. I mean, before this was announced, I was I put in a pre-order for the Blackmagic micro cinema camera because I was like, this is a perfect camera platform and I'm going to build my own personal drone to my own specifications and, you know, and design it for that. And once the Inspire... X5R came out, I was like, okay, forget it. 
to have a ready to fly system that like in case you happen to crash your Inspire, you can go to B&H and just pick up a new one in the time that it takes you to get there. That's amazing. You know, and it's like as much as I would like to buy something of my own and put it all together and I like all that stuff as a business owner, crashes happen sometimes more often they happen. You know, I've never had a crash in a professional setting. You know, I've had some crashes on practices and, you know, training sessions and whatnot. And it's like, you know, it sucks. And if you built it yourself, you have to go back to the shop and put the whole thing together, which I do all the time on the racing side because those things crash constantly. They crash all the time. You're not flying over people. You crash them onto the grass and whatever. I think the technology, sure, it's going to continue. But for right now, I mean, I'm, you know, once that R comes out, I'm going to be pretty satisfied for for a little bit. You know, I think cameras are going to get better. They're going to get lighter. They're going to the the drones are going to stay aloft longer. You know, uh, we're going to have more dynamic range. The same kind of stuff. I mean, what DJI is doing, and I think that. What I really like about what they did with this X5R thing, sorry to keep harping on this one thing, but it's the biggest news right now in this particular case is that I think they really realized that they're a camera company. I, I completely agree with Randy on the uh, with the release of the, the X5R. Um, there's really not much else I can ask for. There was always a, a, a particular quadcopter that I would have to use if I wanted to do GPS waypoints. Uh, to set it up for autonomous flight. I put in my GPS coordinate, hit go, and it will fly and capture all the footage and come back to wherever I want it to land. Then there was a different drone that I'd want to use if I wanted complete FPV. There's a different drone that I wanted to use for a different purpose. Now with the Inspire, with the X5R, everything I need is in one package, everything I could think of. I have waypoint systems that just got introduced, I believe, in a firmware update. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that and was And it's that amazing. Yet. It's, it's great. Awesome. Very easy to use. You have HDMI out for FPV. Uh, if you wanted to use something like the Zeiss Cinemizer glasses, which are great, by the way. It's the only way I'll use them. Um, or the only glasses that I really like to use uh, versus uh, some of the other brands that use a composite feed, a standard def feed, like Fat Shark or some of the other ones. I, I really want to see that HD signal come out. Um, you can also watch it on your iPad. Now with the large sensor camera, I don't have to worry about the lower grade image quality. I don't have to worry about what file I'm using now. I can shoot and record a raw image. Also, with the introduction of these cameras, the X5 and the X5R, they have follow focus systems. While you're piloting the aircraft, you have your camera operator can actually also control the focus, manual focus. That's amazing. There's no other camera uh, drone system that you can get under $30,000 that you can add these functions onto other than the Inspire with the X5 or X5R camera. Before we sign off, Randy, could you tell us a little bit about the Drone Film Festival that's coming up, uh, what we could expect, uh, people who might want to contribute to it? Yeah, six months from now, it's coming fast. You know, the submissions are open till December. Prizes are going to be amazing. We're going to be giving away a lot of drones, a lot of other things. Hopefully, we're going to get B&H to be one of our sponsors again. Hint, hint. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, for those of you out there that are listening, let's see what you got. Sounds exciting. We've really only scratched the surface here. There's so much more we could talk about, and, and the technology is changing very, very rapidly. We can go on forever, but we can't. <laughs> Thank you, Randy and Dan, John, our producer, Jason, our engineer. For more photo news and reviews, check bh.com slash explorer. 
Follow us on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo and email your questions to podcast at bhphoto.com. I'm Alan White. Thank you so much for joining us today.